everybody who is actually in the movement is a black feminist if they want to name themselves that or not because you cannot separate black feminism from the black german movement so that's why i started off like that because i think it wouldn't be fair to say oh she is or she is or she is because at the end of the day people who understand this movement are black feminists and they stand for intersectional justice welcome to the decolonization in action podcast a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonum, and I'm broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. This podcast is co-hosted by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episodes. This is Season 3, Episode 2, and in this episode, I interview Dr. Natasha A. Kelly, who has a PhD in Communication Studies and Sociology. She's the author and editor of four books. Her first art installation, The Poison Cabinet, dealt with racism in and language and was shown at the German Historical Museum in 2016. Based on this idea, she developed a cabinet of curiosities during a visiting fellowship at the University of Virginia in 2019, in which her students could banish objects of everyday racism. With her award-winning and internationally acclaimed documentary, Millis Awakening, winning the Black Laurel Film Award for Best Documentary Feature in San Francisco in 2018. Film installations and screenings followed throughout Europe, in India, Australia, Brazil, and the USA. She made her directorial debut with the theater performance of her dissertation, Afroculture, The Space Between Yesterday and Tomorrow, in three countries and three languages in 2019 and 2020. Her forthcoming book, The Comment, is a documentary of the Afrofuturism Symposium of the same name which she curated at the Hal Hebel am Ufa Theater in Berlin in 2018. First of all, thank you so much for joining us on the Decolonization in Action podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for the invitation. So I want to start off and uh, ask you about your work. You're an artist, academic, filmmaker, and writer, and your work cuts across various themes from Black feminist perspectives in Germany to the history of visualization in German art institutions, as well as on post-colonialism and decolonization. Can you tell me about your intellectual journey in Germany? Well, I came to Germany as a child and went to school in Germany, did like, went the normal school route, did my abitur. Then I actually learned foreign language secretary. So I am also a real translator. It's not just because I speak both languages. I actually learned to translate as, as a tool. And then after my studying that, I started at university in communication studies, sociology, and English philology, as it's called. Did my magister, so I studied before the university system changed to BAMA, and then I did my PhD in communication studies and sociology. And it was practically during my time as an active student, or before that, actually, I think it was my whole life as an activist started with the birth of my child, who will be 25 next week. So I always have in front of me how many years I've been doing this. <laughs> 
and we started back then, you know, just organizing in family contexts and for the kids and stuff. And then during my studies, I started out on the theoretical level, dealing with the history of Black people in Germany. And I wrote my master thesis about the Brothers Keepers, it's a Black German hip hop group back then who uh, are celebrating their 20th anniversary this year, actually. They published an album after the murder of Alberto Adriano by neo-Nazis. And this was where I started analyzing, yeah, Black German communication uh, or different forms of communication. Nearly at the same time, or I think before that, I bumped into the book Faber Bekennen by Mayayim, Katharina Ogontoye and Dagmar Scholz which was the first post-colonial critique of German colonialism. But at the time, they didn't really use the terms post-colonialism or decolonialism. But today I would actually really yeah, situate this book in a post-colonial context for sure. And then it just went on from there to, yeah, when I moved to Berlin 10 years ago, I, I got a job at the Humboldt University working at the Gender Studies Institute and then gender theories came yeah, into the whole complex work field, so to say. And although I must say I've always been a, a black feminist in real life, so to say, but in theory, it came like 10 years ago that I started working on it in a theoretical level. And yeah, then I was working at the Humboldt University till 2013. And since then I've been freelancing and during my time at the Humboldt University, arts was always an important vehicle to communicate such untouchable phenomenon like uh, racism and sexism. So I was able to materialize it through art. And that's when art came into the whole thing. And yeah, and during my freelance time, I, I concentrated more on the arts or from my perspective, I would more call it visual communication and then started doing different curating my first exhibition, which was actually with my students, the post-colonial supermarket. We were on tour with the supermarket for, yeah, nearly 10 years, showing it in different contexts, in different schools, in, yeah, in different spaces. And then from there, I was doing counseling for different museums and different galleries. And then in 2018, like two years ago, the Berlin Biennale invited me to do something. Or maybe before that was also interesting because I'm also a theatre director. I think that's where I focus my passion for the arts right now is in theatre because theatre combines everything. So in theatre, I can write, I can curate, I can direct, I can create setting sets. How do you say in English? Sets, yeah? Uh, theatre sets. Oh, sorry, my English. And so that started in 2015 with my theatre series, My Sisters, that celebrates Mayayim's birthday every year. So Mayayim was an Afro-German poet. People who don't know her, you should know her. So, <laughs> yeah, so she was an Afro-German poet who actually was one of the founders of what I call the second wave of the Afro-German movement. The first wave was during colonialism, second wave in the early 80s, which came out at the same time as German hip hop, who were also in hip hop criticizing, you know, the system in German. So these were like two parallel movements going on at the same time. 
And uh, we celebrate her birthday every year because she died in 96. She committed suicide here in Berlin. And she was a very important figure, still is till today, I think, for this movement. And presently, I am, because I'm also an author, so my newest book, my sixth book, actually, is coming at the end of August. And it's been postponed due to Corona. And then came George and then came all sorts of things where it's just been pushed back. But it's a book on Afrofuturism and Afrofuturism in Germany, especially, because I curated a symposium at the Howell Theatre two years ago. And this reader is, uh, contains like all the speeches and lectures and everything that took place during this symposium. And it's a bilingual book also. So it's in English and German. And yeah, and also my book Afrokultur, which was my dissertation, I rewrote that for theater and I put it on stage in Brazil last year and in the USA early this year. And the premiere in Germany was supposed to be in May, but that also got postponed due to Corona. So we're waiting for that. Yeah. So that's kind of like a, a short overview of, of what I do. Well, your work is so important and so far that you cut across so many different disciplines and you're able to make links between the personal as well as the political, even just how you began in terms of thinking about being a parent and how that kind of sparked your activism. And it reminds me of Patrice Kahn Kohler is one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, who in her book, Why They Call Us Terrorists, indicated that Black mothers are often wondering who has to carry the weight of having to protect their child in a world that's conspiring to kill them. But she also speaks about like the hope that and pride that comes with uh, what it means to be a Black parent. Beyond that, I think one of the things that I want to ask you about is this Afrofuturism question, especially in this moment where COVID-19 has very unequal circumstances, but it also lends itself for people to thinking about the intersections of science fiction and the African diaspora, to thinking about technology, cultural aesthetics, and, and for people who don't know, uh, Afrofuturism was coined by Mark DeRay in 1993, but it also has been picked up by people like musicians like Sun Ra, science fiction writers like Octavia Butler, and scholars like Alondra Nelson. To what extent do you think that Afrofuturism can help elevate ideas about Black and African diaspora cultural aesthetics in the age of COVID? Well, first of all, I would like to maybe add to your introduction on Afrofuturism, because although Mark Dury coined the term in the 90s, Afrofuturism has been around since the time of enslavement. There were books like from Martin Delaney to W.E.B. Du Bois, who were pioneers of Afrofuturism, who wrote speculative fiction and already had the idea of connecting literature to politics and the idea of liberating Black people. This is the ground essence of Afrofuturism. That was then in the 60s picked back up on by Sun Ra, who had a political message, who shared the same political message, to, so to say. And only in the 90s, it was then called by Mark Dury, who was a white scholar and gave the whole thing a name, so to say. 
So this, this whole genre has been around for centuries. And I think that's really important to know and to understand that this is not a new thing that, you know, was embedded as most of our concepts in a white Eurocentric canon and then became something. It was always something. And it comes from an Afrocentric perspective of really seeing and understanding that, yeah, we as Black people need to be free. And just a shortcut of, of that, but to answer your question, we talk about, we as in the Black Speculative Arts Movement, it's a movement that was created by Professor Ronaldo Anderson in St. Louis, Missouri, so which is also the birthplace of, of the Black Lives Matter Movement in 2018. And I think what sparked the second wave of the movement was first of all, a critique to exactly that, a white man had coined this term and to reclaim Afrofuturism and reinsert it into an Afrocentric context. And this was ignited through the presidency of Barack Obama on the, on the one hand, but also through the social political movements like Black Lives Matter. Yeah. So they broadened the term, not only to reduce it to arts and music, and this is especially when you talk of how Afrofuturism was perceived in um, by the white German majority, then it was only or reduced to Sun Ra, to jazz. And I think that the political message behind it actually got lost in translation on the way here, yeah? like many concepts do. No, it get what gets whitewashed, gets depoliticized, and it comes here and people think, oh, it's pure entertainment, but it's not. You know? And I think this was uh, the second movement is like a critique to exactly that, no? that Afrofuturism is a lot more than just uh, art and entertainment. You know? Art and entertainment will always be an important part of it, but it also goes into philosophy, including African or African-American philosophers or philosophers of the diaspora in general. It revisits Du Bois works. And this is what I did at my symposium, for example, reintroducing W.E.B. Du Bois to a German audience with the understanding that he actually studied in Germany during German colonialism and coined his most important anti-racist theories in a German context and then took them back to the US. And I think a lot of people, especially in Germany, miss this point, which is a really important point if we consider where we are today in that anti-racist movement after the killing of George Floyd, that you have the feeling that we have to start all over again, although these theories have been around for over a hundred years. You know? So this is what I tried to, to recapture in the symposium that I did. It was named after the first or one of the first speculative short stories by Du Bois, The Comet. And he wrote The Comet in 1920. So after two years of showing this symposium, the comet in itself regains a new meaning through the pandemic that we're living through at the moment. Yeah? So in 1920, when it was the last pandemic, Du Bois wrote this story. Yeah? And on writing the story, it was shortly after what they called the, the Red Summer, where Black people went on the streets and protested against white terror that took place after the pandemic in 1990. So this is actually really, the reader now shows how history actually is repeating itself, you know, and looking at this whole 
everything that's going on right now, starting from Corona to the killing of George Floyd to the Black Lives Matter movement, as we see it today as a global movement, Afrofuturism is like a lens that really shows the difference between a Eurocentric understanding of Afrofuturism and an Afrocentric understanding, which is actually that in an Afrocentric understanding, we are already post-apocalyptic. The apocalypse was enslavement and colonialism. And a Eurocentric understanding of Afrofuturism is pre-apocalyptic. So they're still waiting for the apocalypse. You know, and this is a, a thing in most science fiction stories. They're waiting for the boom, for something still to happen. And I think that these, these are one of the major differences that allows Afrofuturism today and the reading and understanding of today to actually look into not even a so far away future, but into the near future, which is this whole utopian idea that has now all of a sudden become reality. And it allows maybe for suggestions or even solutions of how to even handle this whole situation that we are in right now. So I invite you all to read my new book. <laughs> I, I, I look I look forward to reading it. And I think that what you bring up with respect to Afrofuturism as it is being exercised by Black people, as it's being theorized, not just within an aesthetic format, but also philosophically. And even just if we think about the idea and the notion of Black genius and Black reason, as Ashila Mbembe talks about, it's so important that we control those narratives and we control how we present the world that we want to live in, which is very much related to abolitionist discourses that are coming up right now in some of these social movements. The idea of living without in a world without police, where we're not being monitored, surveilled, etc., and having violence put upon us. I think one thing I want to talk about is um, going from the future now to the past, <laughs> and specifically since we're in Germany, I'm reminded of Stuart Hall, who once remarked, there is no understanding of Englishness without understanding its imperial and colonial dimensions. And in Germany, in a brief conversation we had, you, you've also kind of alluded to this. Would you agree or perhaps think that this statement applies to Germany? That is to say, we cannot understand Germany without understanding German imperial and colonial connections and dimensions. 100%. <laughs> okay. Yes, 100%. And it's quite easy to explain, actually, because if we look at um, back to the beginnings of the nation state, you know, Germany as a nation state, was founded in, I think it was 1871. The historians gonna be screaming now if that's wrong, but I think it's like 1871, the founding of the German nation through Otto von Bismarck, yeah? So he, there were before this, there were like small feudal states that he united to become German. And the a main criteria was the language. So these little feudal states, all of them that, that spoke German, had the right to join into to this new nation, so to say. So he was then concentrated on strengthening this newly born nation and needed colonialism to do that, yeah? on an economic level, on a political level. And because all of a sudden this new German nation became a part of Europe. Yeah. So we can't even think Europe as a whole without thinking about colonialism and imperialism. So I would even take your thesis another step further. Yeah. So he all of a sudden was in economic competition 
with France, with the UK, etc. So what he then did was invited all the European leaders to the so-called Berlin Congo Conference in 1884, what well, took three months to 1885, November 1884 to, to February 1885, where the actual scramble for Africa took place. Huh? So they literally had a map on the table, ruler, pencil, and divided uh, all the, the whole African continent between each of these European states, the Osmanic Empire, which is today Turkey, and the USA were also at the table. And there were states at the table who didn't have enough money, so to say, to obtain anything. Like they, It was like a game of monopoly. Maybe that's even where the game of monopoly comes from. Yeah? Buying mountains, buying seas, swapping islands, all that took place. Yeah? The founding of the German nation in itself could not have happened without the economic power that is lies behind colonialism. So these things are non-separable. And then it goes on practically, if you, if you look through German history, then when we look back, Germans are often dealing with their national socialist past, yeah? but they disconnect national socialism from colonialism. And I think this is also important that that cannot be done either. Taking the fact that in the word national socialism, it starts with nation, yeah. So even to understand how nation, nationality implies to national socialism, you have to understand colonialism. Yeah, because and the whole nation building process that colonialism could only take place because it was supported through this racist ideology. And this whole racist ideology found its murderous peak in national socialism. So it's one thing adds to the other. And uh, I think this is also something very Eurocentric, that Eurocentrism is very linear. You start at one point and end at another point. But Afrocentricity is time is circular. There is no beginning and there's no ending. So everything is inter interdependent of the other and allows you to read history differently as well. So I think that this is also something that allows Afrofuturism to do, because Afrofuturism, you're dealing with the past at the same time you're dealing with the present and the future. So then, given Germany's history and that connection between colonialism and also National Socialism, which as you articulated, and as well as Hannah Arendt's on totalitarianism, that text also tries to make those links, and she was Jewish-German, so that she could see and analyze those links very deeply. What do you think the German nation-state as it currently stands would need to do to make some kind of amends for that colonial past? There have been calls to return stolen objects to places that are like Namibia and Tanzania. There have been calls for renaming streets here in Berlin, and so on and so on. Restitution repair and acknowledgement that's not just an apology, but that really tries to undo the power imbalance that plays out between Germany and some of the former colonies that it had on the African continent, both in the east, south, and western parts of Africa. So as an anti-colonial, decolonial scholar, artist, writer, and all the things that you do, how would one engage in the German context in a decolonial practice? 
Well, including all of the things that you mentioned, I think that institutionalization of black knowledge, especially as an educator, that would be my number one demand. Yeah, We need black studies. We need anti-racist uh, research um, in institutions that is independent, though. This is the thing, because if we, as um, especially in my academic work, I'm always forced um, to beat around some kind of bush, as we say, to be able to do the research on Black Germany. You know? And institutionalization is, for me, the number one thing that also leads into the other things that you mentioned. You know? Researching things at museums cannot be done without the Black perspective. Uh, restitution, reparation, even looking at decoloniality on the continent which is also a very important thing. I went to Namibia. I, I had the chance to spend time in Namibia, a beautiful country, but you can still see the influences and the power structures that are working in Namibia today. Germans who own land uh, through generations, these things also need to be put in place. So on the one hand, we're looking on the continent and the aftermath of colonialism there. But on the other hand, we're looking also at the aftermath of the of colonialism in Germany. And I think none of these things can be done without a Black perspective, without Black knowledge. And we have so many knowledge gaps, yeah, when it comes to Black German history. And these, these knowledge gaps need to be filled. And this is kind of like the work that I do, although I work in all different fields, as you mentioned, my focus is the same focus. I always work on Black German identity, past, present, and future. So this is what connects my work, you know? And because I'm a communication chat scientist, I look for different channels to communicate through. Maybe that's the way you can explain why I'm so broad, but I always do, I work on the same topic. And this is something that needs to be supported by the state in general. I'm not only talking about giving me a job, but yes, I would take a job too, but I'm, <laughs> I'm really talking on a structural level, yeah, that we need institutions, we need resources, we need facilities. This is also something that I definitely would add, because especially in academia, there is a lot of epistemic violence going on. Now, white people who consider themselves neutral, objective, who are doing the work. And we, especially in post-colonial, decolonial studies, we are beyond the objective. Yeah, and this is where that black feminism comes in with positionality. We want to know from where are these people writing, from where are they doing their research, from where are you speaking, who is speaking, who is being heard. These are like the fundamental basic principles of black feminism. And so we need these perspectives in academia. And that's not happening right now. That's 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 a huge minus, a huge, a huge gap. Yeah. Speaking of Black feminists, as your work has interrogated and incorporated Black feminism quite extensively, especially with respect to the German context, as you've indicated. Who are the young, new Black feminists in the German-speaking lands that you're looking to and putting in conversation with some of the Afro-Germans who were writing and theorizing in the 80s, like Maya Yim, who you mentioned as someone to read for those who are not familiar with her work? But it's also important to think about the, the ones who are also shaping this moment. And to what extent do you find the kind of shape, the characterization and the progress of Black feminism today in Germany? And who are the movers and shakers? 
Um, that's quite interesting that you say that, you know, I, I would like to start in the 80s now, with, especially with Maya Yim, who was also a co-founder of Adifra, Afro-German women's movement, that would maybe be the English translation. <laughs> What's very specific for the German context is that the black movement of the 80s started in the women's movement. So I think that women in the, in the black movement in Germany have a very special space anyway in comparison to other European countries, for example, France, the UK, um, where black women are fighting for their position within the community. I'm not saying that we don't have sexism in the community. We still have too much of that and all sorts, homophobia, transphobia. So sexism in all its forms, yeah. But we also have a very specific space i think that that black feminist or black feminist thought is the foundation of the black german movement and it's interesting that you ask for new or they say new or young black feminists because that is actually going to be my new book because my last book was uh, i mean I'm just writing. I'm just putting the knowledge out there, you know, as you know, because I'm, if I don't live to see the day that we institutionalize black knowledge, maybe the day when it is institutionalized, I will at least know the books are there that I wrote or I edited. So my new book uh, next year I'll start writing is actually on uh, black feminism in Germany. And I'm going all the way back to uh, Mary Church Terrell who was a black feminist, maybe she didn't call herself that, but her work is definitely at the intersection of racism, sexism, or race and gender. And she was one of the first, or actually in 1904, she was the only black delegate at the World Conference for Women that took place here in Berlin. So starting at that point, my new book is going to actually look at black feminism in Germany. And I hope to reach the point to be able to answer your question in that book, who are the black feminists of the day and what are they doing? But at this point, I couldn't really name anybody because I think it's everybody. Everybody who is actually in the movement is a black feminist, if they want to name themselves that or not, because you cannot separate black feminism from the black German movement. So that's why I started off like that, because I think it wouldn't be fair to say, oh, she is, or she is, or she is, because at the end of the day, people who understand this movement are black feminists and they stand for intersectional justice. One question I wanted to ask, because we are based here in Germany and in light of what's been happening in the United States, as well as protests in Belgium, in France, in the UK, to challenge anti-Black racism, there's a huge debate about the R word in Germany, that is to say Lhasa, and there's a controversy about the extent that that word should be used in the German constitution and some calling for it to be stripped away. Specifically, it, there's an original proposal by Amanita Torre, who's an MP uh, here in the German parliament. Can you tell me how these debates have played out and the specificities of the uh, word Rasa in Germany and how in your position on that? Well, my position is to go back to the nation founding. This is where the whole debate actually starts, because Germans tend to leave out the historical dimension of racism in their debates, which is highly problematic. And this becomes visible in actually this discussion on Rasse or race in a German context. So obviously, race in a German context means something different than in an English, French or, or, or other context. So in Germany, 
you cannot separate race from nation. This is the first thing that everybody needs to understand. And this is like provable through the fact that German nation building through colonialism, da, da, da. But then in the German colonies, there were the so-called mixed marriage laws. That, that might be the tra translation, Misch-Ehen-Gesetz, which forbade Black men or women, Africans, to be married to white men or women. But there was a difference. If a white man married an African woman, that was more acceptable, let's put it that way. But their children, the first generation of Afro-German children, were denied German citizenship. This came, yeah, racist political debate, as it was, which was then taken from the colonies. It started in Samoa, later Namibia, then taken to the German parliament, which created the um, citizenship laws in 1912, 1913. And I actually went to the archive myself to see this law. And in this law, it reads, well, I kind of like try and translate it, that not who is German, but who is not German. So you couldn't be German if you were, an, at the time they used the word Eingeborener, which might translate to, I don't even know, I think it's not translatable, so let's just leave it at that, meaning African native people. So it literally uses this word in the law saying that meaning Africans cannot be German. So race in itself is inscribed into nation, into the whole nation. And it still influences who is read as a German today and who is not. So the whole idea of erasing race from the constitution, which is actually in the constitution, to protect people from being categorized as a race in a biological sense would mean deleting the whole idea of a Germany and German nation. That's how, that, to cut a long story short, which of course is not going to happen. Not that we need nation states, but that would be a different debate, right? So this whole idea of erasing race from the constitution is because we are again missing the connection to the colonial history and race in Germany is only taken back as far as national socialism. So when in 1949, race was uh, included in the constitution as a protection category due to the Holocaust uh, against Jewish Germans, people think that we don't need this category anymore because we understand now that there is only one human race and then all the humanists come and the world is fantastic and we are all equal. But no, we are not because today we, un we have to understand race in a more broader sense because at the time the constitution was, was written, people were not considering black Germans. So they were not considering the history of this term, which, as I explained, goes all the way back to the nation itself. So this is why it's absurd to even think about erasing race from the constitution. This is one of the reasons, or maybe two, three of the reasons I've tried to portray right now. So I think that the um, asking to erase race it's like looking for a quick answer, you know, in a sense of colorblindness. If we erase race, racism is going to go away. Well, of course not, because racism was there before race 
was defined and created through science and technology. So even if you do erase race, we're going to have a bigger problem because then the actual analytical category with which we can analyze racism and define racism will no longer exist. So how are we going to get to racism without race? So that's why I am for race as an analytical category, not as a biological category. So speaking as a sociologist now, we need race as an analytical tool to be able to understand, analyze, and at the end, deconstruct racism. In a hundred years from now, when we have done that, then they can reconsider erasing race from the constitution, but then at the same time, can we also reconsider nation states? Because that's where the whole problem lies, you know? And we're not as far, and this is, a, this is another example what I'm trying to explain that yet there are so many knowledge gaps because looking at this from a black perspective is so obvious, but the knowledge is not there in, in, in a German context. It's ha it has not yet been inscribed or institutionalized, let alone been taken seriously. So um, that goes back to, again, to the fact that we need to institutionalize black knowledge to be able to fill some of these knowledge gaps, to get a black perspective or expert perspective into these debates, yeah, which is actually missing. Because yeah, erasing race for so many reasons just does not make sense. I think another thing that you bring up or that I'm reminding of is that not only does the knowledge have to be there, but it has to be nuanced because what ends up happening is that sometimes people conflate race, like what you're indicating as a biological construct, which is not what people are saying, but rather as a social construct that has real material and social impacts on people's lives. And this is something that Barbara Jean Fields and Karen Fields has talked about in Racecraft. Like what is that history of that social construction, whether it's through the constitutional of people being denied citizenship based off of their origin or African ancestry to elements and questions around does someone have an opportunity to have housing or not? And then even beyond that, like what you indicated, what does a nation state do and how does that formation in itself racializes people in its constitution? I want to ask you one final question, end on a lighter note. <laughs> Given that this is a very you know, difficult moment, uncertain times for people, but it seems like you're flourishing and I'm really happy to see that. I wanted to ask you, what are some of the acts of joy that you're engaged in in this current moment? I think the first thing will definitely be the fact to see how many young people are on the streets and are really getting deeply engaged in the topic. I mean, there are a lot of people that have already fallen out because they've realized, oh my God, this has taken too much time. Yeah. I'm not talking about them, but I'm talking about the other half of the people who are really now understanding, okay, wait a minute, this problem is bigger than myself. But this isn't, you know, just a quick quick hashtag on Facebook or Instagram or whatever social media you want to use these days and are really now getting involved and I'm starting uh, also a new project that I'm, I'm not going to say too much about right now but um, with the younger generation of, of black Germans who really want to learn practically no who I'm sharing my expertise with and they're so quick thinkers that I'm happy that once they know more than I know and you can let them out into the world and I can lay back in my rocking chair and watch them 
continue the revolution. Yeah. So this is one really wonderful thing to see in the past 25 years where I've been doing this work, how the lobby has grown, which has only been become possible through social media. The forms of communication that the kids use these days is like, we didn't have these opportunities back in my time when I was in my early 20s, mid-20s. So I think that is definitely one positive thing. To see um, also that, that this topic has reached the middle of society, and I hope that it stays there you know, and is not pushed back out as a, a you know, or marginalized within the next few months. So this is why I'm constantly throwing knowledge out at people. I'm like, man, we're in the middle, we're in the center of attraction right now. And that's where we're going to stay for now. I'm just throwing things out there at people here, food for thought. Here's another thing, Here's more, more food for thought right there and just get people working on it. So that I think is a good thing that I think is, is might be one of the biggest, if there is anything to be called po positive in the context of racism, then uh, it would be the young people that are getting up, that are moving, that are out on the streets. That is definitely something beautiful to see after all this time where we've been really marginalized, not taken seriously, not listened listen to. Um, so that that definitely is, is a change, yeah. Yeah, and I absolutely agree with you to see and hopefully that another world is possible in our lifetime and not just as an individual, but as a collective who can work to make that change happen across generations. Exactly. Yeah. And this is this is what I see growing now. Networks within the community grow um, that are growing that um, a few years ago weren't, weren't possible yeah, for even different black organizations to be working with each other because blackness is in itself diverse. Yeah. So I think that that is something positive that I'm watching now, seeing different organizations come together at the table and um, reflecting the diversity of our community. I think that's really beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Natasha, for joining the Decolonization in Action podcast. Thank you. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and you just listened to season three, episode two of the Decolonization in Action podcast. This episode featured digitally based voices who live in Berlin, Germany. I would like to express my gratitude to the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science, as well as Christina Comer for editorial assistance. As always, there's a list of references and a bibliography in the show notes. To learn more about the podcast or to find out more information about the people and events referenced, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Deck in Action. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episode on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Thank you for joining us.